the evidence of the eyewitness testimony within the Gospels is overwhelming. There is no doubt that the modern church in America has failed its people by not teaching them the earliest stages of church history. Thank you for tuning into Facts, a podcast that primarily focuses on the church fathers, the apocryphal works, the canon of scripture, the text of scripture, and the scripture itself. You can find more information about us on explorechristianity.net. Thank you again for tuning in. Yes, thank you for tuning in on this Monday, starting a new episode about the church at Corinth. Now, we were going through Paul's letters, and we're going to finish that soon. And if you missed last week's program, please tune in and go back and listen to 1 Corinthians. Uh, And we will be finishing up with 2 Corinthians, which is a very complex discussion based on the formation Uh, The timing, is it one letter, is it split into five letters, made into one letter? We're going to get into that next time. But I still want to focus on Corinth, because there's another letter written after Paul, but yet someone trained by Paul, who also wrote a letter to the Corinthians, and that is Clement of Rome. Now, that's not to be confused with Clement of Alexandria, who came later, Clement of Rome was before. Uh, What we know about Clement of Rome is actually very little. And some of it is kind of guesswork as it relates to knowing his life. Uh, We assume he was probably born somewhere between 35 and 40 AD and likely died shortly into Trajan's rule into the Roman Empire. So he would have died somewhere between 100, maybe even a little later than that, 105. Now, in Against Heresies, Irenaeus mentions him. Irenaeus says this man, being Clement, as he had seen the blessed apostles and had been conversant with them, might be said to have been preaching of the apostles, still echoing in his ears and their tradition before his eyes. Now, I'm going to come back to that statement because I want to demonstrate how true that is. When you read First Clement, you find a very apostolic, Pauline-like statements or compilation of their writings and an expansion and explanation of their writings, almost like he's doing an exegesis of what they stated and applying it properly to them. Now, when we're looking at this passage, particularly, um, when you talk about Irenaeus, we have to remember he's shortly after that time, so he had a lot of information about Clement, but he states explicitly that he had seen and heard the blessed apostles, and that his preaching was echoing what he had heard from them. And this is consistent with his writings, but it's also consistent with others like Tertullian. And we had mentioned this passage of Tertullian just a few weeks ago in a program on him. Uh, He stated this, for this is the manner in which the apostolic churches transmitted their registers as the church of Smyrna, which records that of Polycarp was placed there by John and also the Church of Rome, 
which makes Clement to have been ordained in the manner of Peter. Now, we're going to see that he was connected to Peter, but he was also connected to Paul, two very important people. One of the things that we learned in 1 Clement is that 1 Clement is the first record of the martyrdom of Peter and the martyrdom of Paul. In fact, I was just recently doing a discussion on Saturday with an atheist, uh, a pretty new to the atheist movement, but very intelligent uh, man. He was trained at Dallas Theological Seminary, has a master's degree from there, ended up leaving the faith. He and his wife both uh, were both on staff at a church in Texas and ended up leaving that church and ended up following uh, into skepticism and atheism. And now he is a advocate against the New Testament scripture. Uh, he stated even recently, he said, well, in that discussion, he said, Stephen, we don't even have proof these people were martyred. You keep saying Peter, Paul, and these others were martyred for Jesus. We actually don't have any proof of that. Nobody that actually knew them said that. I said, well, actually, that's not true. Uh, we have First Clement, which is a first century document. And First Clement was a hearer of Peter, and he was a friend of Paul, and he recorded that they were both martyred. It doesn't explicitly say the way that uh, history has told us they died, like Peter was hung upside down and crucified. Uh, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that Paul was beheaded. But he does say they were both martyred for their faith in First Clement. So we do have first century and friend connection to the apostles, two of the apostles that died, and he mentions their martyrdom explicitly. Now, one of the things that I find fascinating about that is that his connection to them would demonstrate what Irenaeus was saying earlier. He was not just a hearer and a no and somebody who was in the know. His own teaching demonstrates this style of doctrine, of, of uh, teaching, and also his correlation. It's a connection of echoing the apostles' teaching in his own. And that would make sense because what Tertullian is telling us is that he was ordained in the city of Rome after the manner of Peter. Now, there's some dispute about what order that would have looked like, and we're going to show you some of that here. Because Eusebius, in his Chronicle and History, trying to put together the bishops uh, there in Rome, actually you had to use Africanus. And then he slightly corrected some of the dates that uh, were, were there. But then Jerome comes behind, because naturally Jerome being in Rome, uh, his chronicle took Eusebius's chronicle uh, and, and, and correlated some of the dates, and then corrected some of the dates. Uh, and then he translated it over into his list. Um, and then you find that there are Coptic uh, and Arminian versions of this where they're trying to lay out who were the first bishops, the, the, the hierarchical bishops in some of their cases is what they're trying to point to. But really, who is the main bishop of Rome starting after the time of Peter? Now, there's really no dispute who the next bishop of Rome was after Peter. Uh, pretty much anybody, it doesn't matter if you're talking about Irenaeus or Augustine, uh, Optetus or uh, Hippolytus, any of them are going to mention Linus as being next in line. But it's apparent that Linus did not live very long. 
whether you know the martyrdom story or uh, just died of age, we, we don't have explicit details about Linus. It's bad enough we don't have any about Clement uh, outside of the very little that is stated from some of the patristics. But when it comes to actually dealing with Linus, we almost have nothing other than the fact that he was the first bishop, and there's really no dispute about that, after Peter's martyrdom. Then there's the dispute about the order of Clement. Uh, some have Clement next. They have him second in line. Now, Hippolytus likely has Linus, Clement, uh, Cletus, Anacletus as third and fourth. Now, Optatus and Augustine follow this same stream. Uh, there's also a, a, a statement or Liberian catal that has a list that is followed by Rome as well to this day. And Jerome would have been kind of tampering with this himself, and he would have landed somewhere in the ballpark here. But they also have Linus, Clement, uh, Cletus and Anacletus in, in the order of the four bishops of Rome in that statement. Now, there are differences because Hegesippus uh, and Epiphanian in, the in some of the canons actually have Clemens third. So they have this Cletus guy second, uh, Linus, Cletus, Clemens, as they have Clemens there, Clemens being Clement. But then Irenaeus and Africanus, and then a part of that Eusebius himself, they actually put Clemens third. So again, Clemens being Clement, but they don't have Cletus as second. They have Anacletus second. But either way, they have Clement third. Jerome has that same order. Um, he, he changes uh, really a fourth there, but in the sense of having Clemens or Clement third, it's identical to Irenaeus Africanus. So there is some dispute as to where it is. Now there's a poem against Marcion that actually has him as fourth. You have Linus, Cletus, Anacletus, and then Clement. I don't think that one's right in, in the substantial evidence because it being a poem against Marcion, it's not really as credible as somebody like Irenaeus or somebody like Africanus or Eusebius or Jerome or, or Augustine or even Hegesippus for that matter. I think Hippolytus being in Rome is a very valid argument uh, for having him second. Uh, Optatus and Augustine, I think, add some weight to that. So when we're talking about Clement of Rome, he's either going to be second or third in line. Um, and that would still connect him to Peter. Uh, I personally don't have a explicit opinion that I'm definitive on. I understand the argument of Irenaeus and Africanus, Jerome, Jerome being very interested in this, but if Hippolytus has him as second, he's earlier to Rome's records uh, than say uh, Africanus or, or really dealing with Jerome, but that does not mean he's right. Either he's second or third. And he would have been a disciple of Peter either way. But apparently Peter was a part of wanting him to be in this group. Now, he had some reason to have him as an apostolic bishop 
from what we have read in history, they wanted Clement, Peter wanted Clement in the succession line of bishops. So he's either directly after Linus while Peter's still alive, or he was set to be trained and matured into the bishop prick position. Now that's very likely uh, that that could happen as well. He may have been young and they wanted to see him through this. Uh, I mean, we see men like Athanasius, for example, later on in, in Alexandria, he was a part of the council uh, of Nicaea, but he was not a speaker at the council of Nicaea because he was still an elder and an elder was not allowed to speak. Only the bishops were allowed to do that. And so for me, when I look at these things, I look at the fact that we have multiple statements of Athanasius about Nicaea, but those statements weren't allowed to be shared at Nicaea. And the reason for that is he was an elder, not a bishop. Well, guess what? Finally, we get to our points and we see, oh, Athanasius became a bishop. Yeah, because he was trained in the bishopric as an elder. So maybe Clement was in a similar situation. There was great uh, companionship there. There was apostolic training. There was teaching, as Irenaeus says. He was reflecting his teaching, patterning himself after the apostles. Which really brings us into what Origen says, because Origen identifies Clement as Paul's fellow laborer. And it's not just him. Eusebius, Epiphanius, Jerome, they all say the same thing here. They're all saying that the Clement behind first Clement is the Clement in Philippians chapter number four, verse three, which I can read that for us because I'm sure many of you may be riding in a vehicle or at work, don't have your Bible in front of you. So I'll read it. It states, yes, I have asked you also, true companion, help these women. Now there was in Philippians there, contextually, he had Yudia uh, and Syntyche, who were apparently having disputes amongst themselves, they had some disagreement, uh, and he's entreating them to agree in the Lord, and then he's asking the church to come behind and rally behind these women uh, and get them to find unity. But he says, who have, labored, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life and Eusebius and Epiphanius, Jerome, and then specifically in the earliest of this being origin state, this is the same Clement that traveled with Paul. So not only does he have a apostolic connection to Peter and was appointed as a bishop by Peter, uh, we also see that he was connected to Paul which makes sense. Peter and Paul were both in Rome, and it could be that Clement made it to Rome because of, of Paul. If he was a traveling companion with Paul while he was writing letters to the Philippians and then later went to Rome, it's possible that Clement went with him and ended up actually sticking around with Peter uh, as well. Uh, and it seems like he ended up becoming closer to Peter when it was all said and done, and that's fine. But he's he, definitely in the writings of origin, he is Pauline. He's Pauline in his style. Now, we don't know much about his life and death. There is a fourth century uh, document, the Acta, uh, dating at the time, which gives an idea of what happened to Clement. And I can give you the rundown of this. Uh, Clement was banished from Rome, according to this document. 
during the reign of Trajan, which is why most people would say he died fairly soon into Trajan's reign, which was right after Domitian, uh, which is when I think he wrote his letter. And so kind of talking about first Clement, some people have placed Clement in the 60s and the 70s, and I don't. I just don't think so. Uh, you know, Peter was still alive at that point. He died in the 60s. Uh, but it, this would have been post-70. Uh, this would have been after Peter's death, for sure. I personally believe it's in the 90s, and I, I happen to believe it's in the later part of the 90s. I think he's writing it probably about the same time, if not shortly after the Apocalypse of John, uh, Clement could be anywhere between 96 and 98. And then not long after that, he would have been killed uh, by Trajan. Now, Trajan, uh, it is stated, has sent Clement as a worker in the stone quarry. Uh, he, he put him into forced labor. Uh, now, it states, uh, and I'll read this section for you out of the Acta, which is a fourth century document. Again, we don't know if this is fact or or if it's partial fact with a little bit of fiction we really don't know but it's worth noting it says finding on his arrival that the prisoners suffered from a lack of water he knelt down in prayer that's clement knelt down in prayer looking up he saw a lamb on a hill went to where the lamb had stood struck the ground with a pickaxe releasing the gushing stream of clear water this miracle resulted in the conversion of a large number of local pagans, his fellow prisoners, into Christianity. As punishment, uh, Clement was martyred by being tied to an anchor and thrown from a boat into the Black Sea. Now, to even the, the Christian church that acknowledges Clement of Rome, his symbol is an anchor. And, and this is why, obviously... Uh, now, the Inkerman Cave Monastery marks this supposed place of Clement's burial in Crimea. Uh, now, a year or two before his own death, uh, Cyril, not Cyril Jerusalem, Cyril Byzantium, which is around, you know, 860, 869 in that region, Cyril Byzantium brought to Rome what he stated uh, were the bones of Clement that he found buried in Crimea. Now, the reason he believed there Clement is because he found bones still attached to an anchor uh, that was there on the land. So he had discovered a body attached to an anchor in the same area that Clement had said to die. And so he ended up reporting that he had the bones of Clement himself. Uh, and those bones are now enshrined uh in in and put out for display in the sense of like there's this uh connection to the churches this is clement we have it because who else was tied to an anchor dumped into a sea and landed in in this region well it had to be him who else would it be that's the conclusion they've come to now there are other traditions that claim that the the body of clement including his head uh that they have it they have the head uh, now, that's in the Ukraine. Uh, there's places in the caves of the Ukraine said that they have the relics in the body there, specifically the head of Clement. To me, I don't really know. Again, I don't have a definitive. This goes back to what I said. It's a very complex situation when you're dealing with Clement, how he died. Uh, this is the closest thing to a narrative about his martyrdom. Uh, if he were killed... 
uh, by being hung on a boat anchor and dumped and drowned into the Black Sea. And he did actually land in Crimea. Uh, in Crimea. I, I do think that it is possible that um, maybe Cyril Byzantium's right. Maybe he, he did discover this. Uh, perhaps he went on a search as a result of studying the life of Clement and wanted to discover and if he was buried with the anchor and there's a body attached to an anchor, unless the Romans were just regularly doing that in this area, I mean, process of elimination pretty much takes you pretty close to what could have been Clement's body. And maybe it was. We really don't know. Now, when we get into Clement's writings... So if he died at the time of Trajan and he was alive during the time of Peter... It, to me, I date him around the 30s and 40s and died in the early 100s. But his writing to me, again, I, I really believe to be in that time frame, that, that 96 to 98. Now, there's in a, a statement here, and I'm going to pull up some data from my dissertation, because first Clement that I did in Codex H is one of the biggest documents in it. Um, now there's also a second letter with Clement's name on it. And I don't know of anybody who accepts that as Clement himself. Uh, even Eusebius when writing about Clement affirm first Clement to be him and the same Clement that Paul talked about in Philippians, but he denies any knowledge to the attachment of second, the second letter of Clement. And that second letter is very different from the first. The composition is different. The layout is different. The style is different. The, uh, the syntax is different, and it would have been way after his death. Most would date second Clement between 130 and 160 AD. Clement would have been long gone uh, by the time that was written. Uh, so I don't know of anybody that gives credibility to the second uh, epistle of Clement to Clement himself. First Clement is pretty, pretty, in my mind, confident about the data that we have of him, the connectivity that we have of him and the composition. And again, I want to go back to Irenaeus' statement. He made mention of the fact that Irenaeus uh, believed that the, the person Clement reflects similar statements that he had learned from the apostles himself in his writings. And I want to pull the data up on this. I want to pull up the research that I have in the writing here of first Clement. He uses a lot of scripture, a lot of old Testament and a lot of new Testament scripture. Now in my charts, I actually built charts off of this, of all the citations. And I have four ways that a writer or patristic used the old and new Testament either a direct quotation, which a direct quotation of itself would indicate that it is uh, word for word, almost maybe a word or two difference, but it's a, it's an entire statement or a paragraph uh, that is, is straight copied almost from a manuscript. Then I have an indirect. He's giving an allusion or some sort of uh, paraphrase, which they did all the time. Then I do a partial citation, meaning they take a one-liner. It's a one-liner that's the same as a New Testament or Old Testament. And then if I wasn't sure and I could not bring any um, argumentation of certainty or confidence, I would put it in the potential category. 
Now with Clement, that wasn't hard. Uh, he had four potential citations. Um, to me, that was uh, unique in the potential citations because there were a lot of potentials in Ignatius, for example. But I did not have a lot for Clement. The four that I had really didn't change anything uh, because at the end of the day, he was quoting from that same book in other places. For example, there's a potential of 1 Corinthians, but he, he has a direct and an indirect citation from 1 Corinthians. There's also one for James, which is unique because if this is in the first century and some people try to make James second century, why is he quoting James? But he does not just have a potential quote of James. He has a direct and an indirect quotation from James. There's also a potential of 1 Peter, but he explicitly quotes 1 Peter and has a partial citation from 1 Peter. So even if there's a potential, he's still quoting those three books. There's also a, a potential at 2 Peter. And actually, I added after my dissertation was done another one. Uh, I added that one in there, and that was because I was on a program with Dr. James White on uh, his program specifically. I was on his program actually going over this, and we together on his program, you can find it, it's on YouTube, talked about the explicit statement that was made in Second Peter and then a potential second, and so I put that in there. But if Second Peter is quoted, it is important to note that for the authenticity of these letters because he was ordained by Peter. And if Peter is a person who's behind first and second Peter, we would expect a guy that's trained by Peter to quote from not just one, but both. And we have evidence in the text of first Clement that he is, which again, eliminates the idea that second Peter is a second century text because it's being quoted in a first century text. Another one that I find interesting is he uses the salutation of Jude. Now, Jude and 2 Peter are very closely connected. And if you missed the episodes on Jude and 2 Peter, please go back and listen to those because I talk about the correlation and possible the scribal work being the same. He uses the salutation twice at the end of 1 Clement by Jude. And within that, he would have been familiar with not just the composition of Jude, but, but possibly the apostolic authority within it. So he has a familiarity with Jude. He has a familiarity with Peter. He quotes James three times, if you count the potential, two without it. But his most common New Testament book that he quoted from is Hebrews. Now, this becomes very important. If you missed my episode on the writings of Hebrews, you can go back to that. Hebrews was never disputed except in Rome. And it was not disputed any time in the first couple hundred years. It was later due to priesthood. And naturally, the way the Roman, church, Roman Catholic Church organized itself under confessions and things like that, the book of Hebrews pretty much makes that null and void and unnecessary. But they disputed it later, more so because of it ruined their system. But the earliest composition and attestation of Hebrews was never disputed. There was arguments about who wrote it. Most believe Paul was behind it, but there was debate about who wrote it. In fact, may I say that some have alleged that Clement is the, the, the writer behind 
the book of Hebrews. Now, I don't hold this position. Um, it's possible. It's possible that he was a potential candidate for the writing um, of Hebrews. I, I don't know if I, I would say that he is. I think there's a lot of people say, well, he's similar to this writing, that writing. Hebrews is not one of those places. Um, he's not one of those that actually um, corresponds with the theology in the sense of like, he would have just been a scribe, not the author. He would have been writing it, not authoring it. Probably Paul behind it. To me, I still hold to the fact that Hebrews is probably Luke as a writer for Paul, uh, as Clement of Alexandria says. And again, if you missed that, you can go back. It's on the podcast. But I think that it's possible that he is one of the potential people to have done it. He clearly can write very well. And he quotes Hebrews quite a bit. Uh, Hebrews was his most notorious New Testament book, more than he quotes the Gospels. Now, what's interesting, again, is when we look at Clement, we go back to the data. He quotes Hebrews nine times, and none of those are potential. All of those are either direct, indirect, or partial. He quotes Matthew the most of the Gospels, six, but Hebrews nine. Uh, he quotes Mark once, he quotes Luke twice, he, quote, he quotes Acts twice. And in fact, his first entire quotation in the second chapter of First Clement is his first connection to the New Testament. And he quotes the book of Acts. And he specifically quotes a statement of Jesus that only Acts records is better to give than receive. So he actually uses a Jesus statement that's recorded in Acts. Uh, he quotes 1 Corinthians three times, 2 Corinthians once, 1 Timothy one. Titus once, Hebrews 9, James 3, 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2, Jude 2, and I even have partial connection to the book of Revelation. And it's kind of interesting because if Revelation was written at the same time that he is writing this, Revelation would have been fresh off the press. Now, it is abundantly clear he's quoting from Isaiah, but what he does is he uses the same interpretation of Isaiah and fulfillment that revelation does word for word. So either he, he got that orally and he had spent some time around John or something. And they came to the same conclusion about the interpretation of Isaiah, or he's actually quoting an early statement from a freshly pre uh, freshly published book of revelation, which would make this very interesting. Now, when you go into the old Testament, the man was not limited in quoting the Septuagint. Uh, naturally, he would have quoted the Septuagint. Genesis, eight times. Exodus, four. Numbers, one. Deuteronomy, five. Joshua, one. Esther, one. And he does. He actually tells, uh, he doesn't quote Esther. He alludes to it. He tells the story of it. <clears throat> and um, he talks about two heroic women of faith. And he mentions Esther and then the Apocrypha book of Judith. Um, he tells both their stories. Now, it's clear the Esther that he's quoting is obviously the longer version of Esther. Uh, and that would make sense. He has a Septuagint, which is twice as long as the Hebrew version. Uh, but it's clear he's alluding to the Greek telling of Esther's story. Uh, that Job, oh man, he loved Job. Uh, eight times. The Psalms, oh my goodness. 
25 quotations from the psalm. 18 of those are actually direct. The other seven are partial. Now, almost always when he's quoting the psalms, it's word for word. Um, and he clearly had a manuscript uh, right in front of him when he would quote from the psalms. Proverbs, same thing. Four times, three direct, uh, one partial. Then he loved Isaiah. Ten times he quotes from Isaiah. And one of those times, it's not like, let me say this. When I say ten times, it's not like one-liners. He quotes almost the entire Isaiah 53 chapter. Almost the entire chapter. Word for word in the Septuagint. It's incredible uh, when you put them side by side. Surprisingly, he only quotes Jeremiah one time and he alludes to a statement Jeremiah makes, but he does quote from Jeremiah. He gives us partial citation from Ezekiel, two uh, indirect from Daniel and one partial from Daniel. He even mentions the book of Jonah and then he quotes uh, the book of Malachi. So in total, we have over 113. We're talking about a letter to the Corinthians. That is a part of the same size, about the same size as Hebrews or Corinthians. And he quotes the Old and New Testament in a letter that size over 113 times. You say, well, what about all the indirects? All right, if we take, or the potentials, we take the potential citations out. Now we're closer to, uh, we're still at 100. We're still around, a we're at 100 quotations. If you take away the possibilities that he's not, referring to them over 100 allusions and a single epistle to the old and new Testament. One apocryphal book, the book of Judith. And when you get into the new Testament, his favorite writings are the ones that are alleged to Peter or connections to Peter, like Jude and Paul. I mean, think about this. If you take 1st, 2nd Peter and Jude, which seem to be a part of that same connectivity, and then you take James, which is also what Peter, Peter correlated with James. They had to have been. One, they were friends. Two, the writings of 1st Peter and James are very much connected. And again, if you missed that, go back. I did an episode on both 1st Peter and one on James. You can hear me on that. The rest... He doesn't use any of the Johannine, either gospel or epistles, possibly revelation. The rest of the writings that are epistle state are Paul. And he for sure uses 1st, 2nd Corinthians to talk to them about them because he's writing to the same church. In fact, in the book of 1st Clement, he reminds them of Paul writing a letter to them dealing with the sectarian breakoffs that they had these, Oh, we're of a Paul, we're of Apollos, we're of Cephas. He actually quotes first Corinthians one to the Corinthians to remind them of what Paul had written to them prior. He used Paul's authority to, to challenge them in this letter, because in this letter in first Clement, he's approaching the Corinthians for kicking bishops out of their church without doing anything morally wrong. They ganged up on him. And he's correcting them for the way they handled this and that they needed to reinstate the bishops they were expelling. And he used Paul's authority to demonstrate that how they did this was wrong and that they had already been corrected on this in the past. So several of these leaders in the church were being kicked out 
And he was saying it's unjust. It's unjust what you're doing. Uh, again, it's long. It's a longer letter. But how much scripture he uses is valuable to defend the apostolic state of many of these. But in that approach, he does state, as I said, in the, the letter there, when he's dealing with the favoritism and the removal of people, when he quotes 1 Corinthians 1, these are the words that he says, take up the epistle of the blessed Paul, the apostle. He's assuming they have that letter, folks. This goes back to what I said about Polycarp as well. He assumes they have the letter. He assumes they can read it. And he quotes it for them in the section they need to be reading. It's exactly what we have. They didn't have a different 1 Corinthians after our first manuscripts come out with it. Like dealing with the Pauline manuscript corpus, the, the, the biggest one we have of, which is P46, with a lot of Pauline letters. We're not reading a different 1 Corinthians than they were. This idea, oh, they have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies and corruption and corruption and corruption and corruption. And we wouldn't recognize the initial text if we had it. The papyri last about 100 years, 120 if you take care of it. These churches cherished and loved the letters they received from the apostles. They were still in the churches. They could have, by date, by the time Clement is writing, still had an original letter that Paul sent to them. At worst, a second copy of it, that would have been extremely accurate. And clearly Clement has one. He's quoting from it. The same way ours is written. So take up the epistle of the blessed apostle Paul. Take it up. Hold it. Read it. He assumes they still have the letter and that it still reads the same way it was when Paul wrote it to him about 40 years before. Now, again, he maintains quite a bit of the tradition of Peter and Paul, which shows his connectivity, as I stated, his martyrdom. But within this, his letter became important to the churches, not in a canonical sense. Although I will tell you that in Canon 85, First Clement is somehow listed as a canonical book. And some people get all worked up about this because you do have manuscripts uh, where it is connected to, uh, at the end of some of the manuscripts, like uh, Codex Alexandrinus is actually one of the earliest manuscripts of First Clement, 5th century. Um, and in this manuscript, it has Clement, First Clement, attached to it. People go, oh, well, that means, well, no, no, no. You got to understand something. If they put it at the end of the manuscript, they recognize it as an important public red document. So First Clement was clearly a red document on behalf of the churches. They found value, instruction, and wisdom, and edifying state from a letter like First Clement, and, and naturally so. In P6, you see it connected to a fragment of John, a section of it. So naturally, what we find is that the early church had great appreciation 
for the writing of First Clement. They saw it as apostolic in some ways, not in the sense of canonical apostolic, but that it reflected the apostles' teachings like Polycarp or others. This became a very important publicly read instruction manual to the church, as well as it should have been. If you read First Clement, it's rich. And again, if he's quoting the New Testament, Old Testament together over a hundred times, you know he's pretty much doing an exposition of this. It is not canonical. It was never seen as canonical. And the fact that he has to appeal to the authority of the apostles regularly in his writings, demonstrating he himself does not have that authority, would tell us it's not scriptural. He's not an eyewitness. He was born after Jesus' death. But he was a disciple, the apostles, making him a very important person. And the fact that he quotes the scripture as much as he does, it is it is an essential writing for us to know and learn because it's it's confirming much of what we believe we do have in that gap of time between the apostles and the second century writers. He is one of the few first century writers we have. I don't think he's as early as some people try to put him like in the 60s, but I do think he is later during the reign of Domitian writing about the same time John was getting the uh, revelation on the island of Patmos and even alludes to maybe the earliest stage of what we have of that composition of the book of revelation. It's a beautiful thing. He's an important figure. I challenge you to read his letter. I think it'd be important for you. I'll even put his letter in the description uh, at the bottom. So if you're listening to this on uh, you know, either Apple podcasts or whether you're listening to this on Spotify, whatever, whatever platform you're on, it's on five or six. I'm going to put in the comments a transcript that you can read at First Clement that I think will be very helpful for you to read, to observe. I think you'll appreciate it. It's long, it's lengthy, but I think it's worth your time. And I think you're going to start seeing that Irenaeus is right. Man, this guy does sound a lot like Peter and Paul. He is really Pauline in his approach, his wording. And then he takes Jude's salutation and uses the salutation of Jude at the very end. It's an extraordinary writing. Well, as we finish up this program, thank you for tuning in and listening as we continue to talk about the Corinthian church who he wrote to. Uh, once again, they, they, kind of left what Paul wrote, that wrote them to do in the first Corinthians that he gave them. And it seems like they went back to some old bad habits and Clement had to point them back in the right direction and reminded them of what Paul had said earlier and using Paul's authority to correct them over his own. But in this writing, we see a valuable asset to Christianity, the martyrdom of two of the most important uh, disciples that we know of, uh, Peter and Paul. We see him take up their writings and call them scripture and quote them as scripture and deal with them as scripture and authorities. And he assumes that their writings are still available and the churches have them in their grasp that can open and read them for themselves, demonstrating we did not lose some sort of original writing or that it came so corrupted that we can't recognize it today, really dismisses that idea. We do have valuable asset in First Clement and that he has expanded and kind of given us idea of what canon of the New Testament looked like, quoting from many of the books that he did. 
So we see a beautiful letter. We see a great letter. We see something that God has used throughout the ages. And we thank you for tuning in and, and helping build this program to listen to podcasts like this one and to learn. We see this as valuable for you. We see this as valuable here at Explore Christianity and the work that we do. And we thank you for tuning in and sharing this as this program continues to grow. We hope you have a good week. This will be a blessing to you. Grace and peace to you.